This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's Fiona Pepper here, and this week on Fictions, a celebration of the telephone. Now, I'm not talking about your smartphone, which is glued to your hand and used to check social media incessantly and send texts and messages and listen to podcasts and read the news. I'm talking about the one that used to sit, waiting to ring on the dedicated telephone table. The one that brought you good news and bad news and the voices of those you loved. It had a very distinct ring. It had that stretchy, curly cord and the rotary dial. Today, we travel through time back to when the world was just a little slower and gentler than it is now. This is The Pickup. Sally P. Benjamin was one who loved to love. That much is certain. She's been too loving since the second we met her, says B. Benjamin about her daughter, Sally Penelope Benjamin, to anyone who listen, as though it's a fault. B. and Norm Benjamin had been finding it difficult for some years to bring a baby into the world. It was 1977, and science hadn't caught up with the dreams of people who had trouble having babies, so the only option was adoption. Fostering wasn't on because Norm Benjamin was a policeman, and, well, they lived in a small suburb, and fostering could get bloody messy, doll. They put their name down on the only dream available to them, the adoption waiting list. B. Benjamin worried in silence from the second she signed the papers that she wouldn't be able to love the baby. Simply putting their names on the adoption register had made her feel like she was somehow lacking in the lady stakes. And every time the phone rang, she'd jump, praying the call wasn't the call. One day, it was. Is that Mrs. Benjamin? Yes, it is. This is the Department of Social Services. We have a baby for you. B. Benjamin was shocked. The moment had finally arrived. Ah, uh, Mrs. Benjamin? Mrs. Benjamin, are you there? I'm sorry, yes. Um, yes, I, yes, I'm here. There's a baby for you. She's a week old, and you can pick her up at Crown Street Women's from 2pm today. She? Yep, she's a baby girl. A girl? Yes, did you hear that? Crown Street Women's? You can pick her up today? Uh, just let me get a pen. B. Benjamin's hands shook with the force of a palsy as she fumbled around in the telephone drawer. Because it was 1977, everyone had a telephone drawer. You see, underneath the telephone was an actual drawer. Inside this drawer was a thing called a phone book. A phone book was a place where you could find out what people's phone numbers were and their actual street addresses. Scattered around beside the phone book were usually an assortment of pens stashed there during a lounge room clean. 
B. Benjamin wrote down the details and hung up. She sat for a moment on the velvet-cushioned seat, which was part of the telephone table. A phone table, above all else, was a very practical piece of furniture. Not only did it have the aforementioned drawer for the phone book and other bits and pieces, but it had a cushioned seat attached to it, so you could actually sit down while making the phone call. B. Benjamin had never felt more appreciative of a bit of cushion in her life. She appreciated the cushion for a good ten minutes. When you think about it, ten minutes is a really long time to sit and do nothing, which is essentially what B. Benjamin was doing. Nothing. Nothing except thinking in a loop that went on for ten minutes. Oh, dear God, please let me love this baby. Oh, dear God, please let me love this baby. And so on, for ten minutes. When the ten minutes had passed, B. Benjamin knew she had to phone her husband. Her husband, Norm Benjamin. B. thought about Norm and where she'd find him. She'd find him at the station. She guessed now he was a sergeant, he'd be sitting at his desk, making his way through a mountain of paperwork with his big hands and sausage-like fingers wrapped around a cream bun. Norm Benjamin had finally been transferred to a station near home, a station with a telephone number B hadn't yet been able to memorise. Good morning. May I speak with Sergeant Benjamin, please? It's B. Benjamin, his wife. Certainly, Mrs. Benjamin, just a moment, she heard a young-sounding constable say. There was a shuffle, and in the background, B. heard her husband being called by three different people. Sarge! Sarge, it's the phone! Sarge, phone for you! There was a click, a, got it! and another click at the end of the phone. Not such a thing as transferring a call in 1977. Sergeant Benjamin here. Norm, they've got a baby for us. There was a pause. A pause that felt like half an hour to be Benjamin, but in fact was only seven seconds, eight at the most. B. Benjamin heard what could only be a cream bun being slammed down on the desk with excitement. Well, wacky-doo! Over a baby, Norm, really? B. had heard wacky-doo used when the Souths won a game or when the cocky repeated something back, but for a baby? Wacky-doo? Norm Benjamin was, of course, elated. B knew he would be. She was hoping his elation, his wacky dooness, if you will, would seep into her. After all, they'd been waiting for this news so much longer than the 18 months they'd been on the list. It 
It was three hours until the time designated to pick up the child they'd committed to loving for the rest of their lives, even though they'd never met her. The longest and shortest three hours that ever passed for Bee and Norm Benjamin. What if she's one of those children you heard about that wouldn't hug you? What if her parents had been the recipients of a Norm Benjamin handcuffing and somehow she knew it? Bee showered for the second time that day. Scrubbed herself from head to toe in imperial leather soap. Dried herself off, administered a lavender talcum powder. Blow-dried her light brown permed hair, applied a full face of makeup and tied the yellow belt on her waist so tightly it pinched her skin through the brown striped polyester dress. What if the baby didn't like them? What if there was no way she could replicate the bond of a real mother? Norm had rushed to the barber on his way home from the station. With short front, back and sides, he forced his enormous policeman's body into their fairly enormous bathtub, scrubbed himself from head to toe. While dousing himself in Old Spice, Norm wondered how old his little girl would be when he could teach her to catch a fish down the creek, or build an aviary for the budgie collection he knew she'd love. As they walked to the car, Norm Benjamin grabbed his wife's hand for the first time in three years. The drive from Lemire to Paddington had been hassle-free, as if the world knew that the Benjamins had no time for day-to-day -day car troubles and traffic. Every few minutes, they'd smile at each other through the silence. Their new car had a cassette player, so they listened to the carpenters. A kind of hush. I wonder if she'll like the carpenters. The only words Norm spoke for the whole trip. What sort of person doesn't like the carpenters? The only words B spoke for the whole trip. And now they were waiting in a small room at the hospital, nervously. B. Benjamin's heart was beating fast. Norm Benjamin was wiping sweat from his freckled forehead every few minutes with a blue hanky that had his initials NB sewed in the corner. The door creaked open. A nurse walked in, an old-school nurse, dressed head to toe in white, white cardboard hat struggling for a place inside her nest of black and grey frizzy hair, white dress competing for attention with her ample bosom, white stockings revealing calf muscles Norm Benjamin noted a rugby league player would have been proud of, and white shoes so sensible you knew for certain she'd never be bandaging a blister on her own foot. The big nurse came with a small bundle. A small bundle, full of baby. Here she is, the nurse said warmly, looking at B, B, who couldn't meet her gaze as she was so nervous she thought she'd pass out. 
People say babies don't smile until they're a few weeks old. People say when babies make smiling inflections with their face, it's because they have wind. B. Benjamin has never believed that. And you know why? When the nurse put the baby into B's trembling arms and they looked at each other for the very first time, do you know what that baby did? She spat out her dummy and smiled right into her new mother's eyes. And if you were to tell B. Benjamin it was wind, or whatever it is little babies do, she'd shout you down. Because she was there. She knows it was Sally being Sally. She knows it was pure love. Pure, instant love. And even though B loved her back with that same pure, instant love, she always says, she's been too loving since the second we met her. As though it's a fault. That was The Pickup, written and directed by Melanie Tate and performed by Heather Mitchell with mixing by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. Now this next story, we go even further back and across the world to London, where a young woman, lonely and cold, dreams of a Ballarat Christmas. Jean Irwin grew up in Ballarat. And from the moment she could conceive of doing so, she longed to escape its provincial confines. In her late teens, she went to live in Melbourne, but even in the city, she wanted something more. So she sailed to England in 1937. She was 23. In London, she got a poorly paid job as a typist. With another Australian girl, she shared a tiny attic room rented out by a large family who occupied the rest of the house, along with more boarders in the basement. She slept with the window open at night, as was the custom in Ballarat, even in the winter. Her landlords were horrified. She went to places she'd read of in her childhood. She went to the galleries and on the rare occasions she could afford it, to the theatre. She had weekends in the country, courtesy of the Victoria League, an association of English families who thought it amusing to entertain colonials. Jean loved these breaks from London, but found herself hankering for the wildness of the Australian countryside. Everything here was green, pretty, soft. Back in London, she'd go regularly to Australia House to pick up letters. She sat on the steps and read the news from home. As the year progressed, her mother wrote about picking which chook to kill for Christmas and ordering the pork, while Jean struggled to find money for a warm overcoat in the worsening cold. She still insisted on having the window open at night. The letters from home, the description of preparations for a summer Christmas affected her more than she expected. The days grew shorter, the fog thicker and the weather colder. She imagined the dusty heat of the Ballarat countryside, the childhood pleasure of swimming in the Creswick Dam, 
She longed to hear the voices of her family, to have a sense of connection with home. She tentatively inquired about the cost of a telephone call. It would cost almost two weeks' wages, over three pounds sterling. And she still hadn't bought that winter coat. She told herself it would be madness. That money would get her to Europe the following spring, or to Egypt. But the chill of the London air, the darkening skies... She took the plunge. She wrote to her family in Ballarat... I'll telephone you on Christmas Day. Jean's going to ring on Christmas Day. Her mother, ever anxious for her grown-up offspring, was ecstatic. She's going to telephone? asked her brother John, only 11, who adored his older sister. All the way from London? She must be mad, said her older brother Bill, the middle child and family tearaway. The cost, her father said. Her father... Harold went down to the post office, an imposing building on the corner of Sturt and Lydiard Street, Ballarat. He was a recognisable figure, a mason, a member of the old colonist association. His family had been in Ballarat when it was a gold rush town. The technological intricacies of the telephone call fascinated him, but worried him too. My daughter Jean will be telephoning from England on Christmas Day, he announced. A long discussion followed. Harold was nothing if not thorough. He wanted to make clear that the importance of this event must be recognised. He wanted the monetary costs discussed, the possible hitches mitigated, and the general vagaries and past faults of the telephone system worked through. The postmaster agreed it was a weighty matter, deserving an in-depth investigation. A technician from the Postmaster General's department came to the Irwin house. The telephone was on the wall in the hallway, in pride of place, next to a photo of the Mordialic Bridge, which Harold had constructed for the Country Roads Board five years before. There was a polished phone table with two drawers containing the stubs of pencils, old bills and receipts, a tin of nails. The technician carefully looked at the phone from every angle. When you pick it up, you got the local operator. A lot of the time, the operator knew people by their voices. Sometimes when you asked for a number, she'd tell you they were out, usually where they'd gone and when they might be back. The technician wasn't after local gossip, but the suitability of this phone for a higher purpose. He replaced the receiver, looked it over carefully yet again. I think you need a newer job, he said. One of those ones that sits down on the table. The order went in, and it was duly installed. Jean's mother, a vivacious and popular woman called Nell, who indulged her love of hats and gloves with a regular order from George's in Melbourne, took guardianship of the phone. This phone was not for local calls. She instructed all her friends and the tradespeople and the shopkeepers that they were not to ring. This was no great hardship in a town like Ballarat where you met most people down the street. As Christmas approached, if the phone did ring, it wasn't answered. Instead, Nell sent her youngest son, John, round the neighbourhood to find the caller and warn them that the Irwin's phone was only for that call from London. The table on which the phone sat was dusted daily. The object, black and solemn, was looked at by everyone who came to the house. On Christmas morning, the family assembled round the telephone table as the pork crackled in the wood stove in the kitchen. 
The table was set in the dining room with white damask cloth and the best silver. There were plenty of bottles of Ballarat Bitter waiting for after the phone call. On Christmas Eve in London, after a cold, agitated day of waiting and homesickness, Jean reminded her landlady that the time was drawing near for her call to the family in Australia. The landlady's family had also been waiting for this momentous event, speaking to people on the other side of the world, kangaroos, emus, an upside-down country. Is it really summer there? they asked. Could we watch? they asked. Jean, usually unfailingly polite and eager to please, was aware of her rising emotions, didn't want an audience. I'd rather talk to them in private if you don't mind, she said. She withdrew into a sitting room, shut the door and called the exchange. I want to telephone Australia, Victoria, Ballarat, 1338, she said. Finally, the heavy black phone on the polished table rang. Pick it up, shouted Harold. What if it's not her, asked Nell. Quick, pick it up, Bill said. Gingerly, Jean's mother picked the sacred object up. Hello? Is that you, dear? Her voice was shaking. Is it Jean? asked Harold. The operator's putting her through. The tension was palpable. Is it Jean? asked John, unable to contain himself. Yes, said their mother at last. She said hello. She said happy Christmas, said Nell. Tell her happy Christmas, said Harold. They all said happy Christmas, dear. What's the weather like? Jean heard her mother ask. It's cold, Jean said. She said it's cold, Nell told her husband and sons. The remark was taken in, repeated. It's cold, it's cold. A sacred incantation. Ask her what time it is, asked Bill. What time is it, dear? Her mother asked Jean. She says it's nine o'clock at night. It's eleven here in the morning. Five past, more like it, Harold said. Nell could see Harold's anxiety rising. Your father wants to say hello, dear. Hello, dear, he boomed down the line. Happy Christmas. What did she say, asked John. She said hello, said her father, and happy Christmas. And it's cold. Can we talk to her, asked both brothers. Her brother's voices, she'd almost forgotten. Hello, happy Christmas, she said. Happy Christmas, It's cold, is it? they asked. What's she saying now? asked her mother. She says it's freezing, foggy. You can hardly see when you go out in the street. She's got to go. It's the operator. Pass it to me, said Nell, to say goodbye. The brothers passed the phone to their mother. Goodbye, dear. We miss you. Happy Christmas. Jean put down the phone in that dark little English sitting room. She sat, almost unable to breathe, then burst into tears. She could imagine it back home. The glasses filled with beer on the table. The old silver serviette rings. The sun reflecting off the white of the gravel-edged roads. The torpor of Christmas afternoon in an Australian country town. The white-painted wooden house with the shady veranda and the blue hydrangeas wilting in the summer heat. The sound of those voices from home echoing down the line, she felt the full 13,000 miles away. She blew her nose, composed herself, and opened the door of the sitting room. The whole of the landlady's family, their ears to the keyhole, collapsed into the room.
What did they say? What's the weather like? What time was it? Did they wish you a happy Christmas? That was The Christmas Telephone by Helen Townsend. That story about her mother, Jean, was originally published in the Sydney Morning Herald Good Weekend magazine. It starred Emily Russell with sound by John Jacobs. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Townsend. I'm Fiona Pepper and you've been listening to Fictions. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.